Robots Radio presents... In 2003, director Sofia Coppola and star Bill Murray gave the world an introspective look at what it means to be understood. In 2020, we take our first trip to Japan. The film is lost in translation. The whiskey is Nika Gold and Gold. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 2003 film Lost in Translation. Brad, I'd be kind of surprised to hear if if you had seen this film before, but had you ever heard anything about the movie Lost in Translation before? So I'd, I had definitely heard of the movie. From what I remember, you know, 13, 14-year-old Brad thinking back, this movie was about two people who sat in an airport and fell in love with each other, and that that airport was in Japan. So basically nothing. Nothing about this movie. Uh, I mean, they are in an airport at some point, and they are in Japan. So I pretty much <laughs> had it spot on. You basically nailed it. You know, Brad, I don't want to give away too much of, of the ending of our podcast where we give scores, but... Part of me believes that the movie might have been a better movie if it actually had taken your plot points and gone with those instead of the ones that it actually went with. Yeah, I this was an interesting movie. However, it was a boring movie. I found myself pretty bored as well. And it's pretty clear that this was intentionally a very slow moving film, that it it really kind of revels in the quiet moments, the reflective moments of its characters. But yeah, after a certain point, I just thought that the movie didn't really have a lot of momentum to it. It really does kind of meander. And I think some people might see that as a positive, depending on, on what kind of films you like to watch. You're, you're basically just dropping in on these two people as they wander aimlessly throughout Japan and throughout their own lives and try to find some meaning to them. But the structure of the movie kind of like it reflects that meandering nature a little bit too much for me. I just I kept wondering at at what point is this movie going to kind of have some tension, have some sort of conflict that needs resolved. And it really doesn't at any point. Yeah. I, if you wanted to put it in a more layman's terms, when is this movie actually going to do something? Yeah, for sure. And I, I remember pausing the movie at the point where they have their very first conversation. You know, Bill Murray is in his tux after doing the first Suntory commercial, and they're sitting at the bar at the hotel, and she sits down and talks to him for a few minutes. And I paused it, and that was like 40 minutes into the film. And I was like, wow, it took them 40 minutes for something to actually happen. Yeah. And it's not like this is a very long film. I mean, it's it's an hour and 42 minutes officially listed on IMDb. And you got to factor in there's probably at least five minutes of closing credits. So, I mean, you're talking about an hour and 30 something minute movie, and it is almost the halfway point before these two characters finally cross paths. Yeah, it takes such a long time for this movie to get going that there's part of me that looks at it and I say, man, when movies are slow in the first, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes, usually they will pay that off 
by giving you something interesting that reflects back on all the stuff that happened at the start of the movie. You know, I, I think about Inglorious Bastards and how the opening 30 minutes of that movie, you know, with Christoph Waltz interrogating the French farmer about the Jews, like, honestly, it's a very slow moving scene. But it's paid off with an action sequence and Shoshana running away and you move into the rest of the movie. And so but there's no sense of that in this movie. You never really get a payoff at any point for all the patience that you have given the director. Well, before we get any further into our criticisms of the film and our analysis of it, I think it's time we take a step back. And we introduce this movie to our audience. I don't think that a, a large portion of our audience may have seen this film. And, you know, it came out 17 years ago now. So, Brad, can you fill us in as Film and Whiskey Nation with our favorite segment, Brad Explains? So Lost in Translation is a film about two characters played by Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson called Bob and Charlotte, which I am now realizing sounds a lot like Bill and Scarlett. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even think about that till just now. <laughs> I didn't either. So Bob and Charlotte are in Japan for various reasons. Um, Charlotte is a young married woman who her husband is a photographer and he's on a business trip here in Japan. And Bob is a famous actor and he is in Japan to shoot for Suntory Whiskey. You know, he's doing some promo marketing and advertising. And the, the movie just revolves around how both of them are very misunderstood by the people that love them. They are contrasted against the Japanese culture. There's no way that they understand really what's happening around them. And so they kind of find refuge with one another. They understand each other's humor. They enjoy spending time together. And so the movie is really about two kindred souls finding one another in a world where they're completely misunderstood. We, we've already said not much happens in the movie. It's it's a very simple film. It's like you said, two people kind of lost in their own lives and, and trying to find some meaning in, in other people. And really, Bob, I, <laughs> I hate to say this, and I, I'm not saying this in a prideful way at all, but I think that my explanation actually made it sound like a super interesting movie. Like, if you pitched that to me as an idea for a movie... I'd go, man, like, yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'd be up to see how those people connect and what draws them together, what makes them interested in one another. But they don't really succeed on many of those levels in this movie. And so I, it, it's a little disappointing to hear myself describe the movie and think, man, I actually kind of want to see that movie. So let me back up here and explain a little bit about why this movie ended up on our list of films for this podcast. We talk about how we watch a classic movie every week, and that can mean a lot of different things. It could be a movie that was a juggernaut at the box office. It could be a movie that is universally regarded as one of the best films ever made. And then there's movies like this where the critics loved this movie. Uh, it was nominated for Best Picture. It's still pretty well regarded by audiences. It has a 7.7 .7 on IMDb with over 300,000 votes. I think this movie kind of perfectly encapsulates where American independent movies were in the early 2000s. This movie was released by Focus Features, uh, who was really kind of like in their infancy at the time. And you're finally starting to see indie movies become a force to reckon with on the big stage. 
a movie like this in the mid 90s before, you know, the Weinsteins took over Miramax and really gave indie movies their due would never have been nominated for Best Picture. And I think now I look back at this movie and I'm not a huge fan of it, but I've always thought that it plays an important role in where we've kind of gotten to with the independent movie. Like looking back on it now, it's kind of like a time capsule of the early 2000s. And I think so much of the way this movie is made, it wouldn't be done this way in you know 2020. But I still think it's kind of important for us to look back and see like how far small independent movies have come even just since this movie came out. Yeah. So honestly, Bob, I don't see tons of independent films. You know, I, I don't go to the theaters a lot. And when I do, you know, it's it's not always going to be the small independent films that I haven't heard of. However, I will say, you know, I just saw Jojo Rabbit recently in theaters and I was really blown away by that movie. You know, there's a lot of depth and intrigue in that movie. And interestingly enough, it also stars Scarlett Johansson. And I think that she has developed as an actress in such phenomenal ways that you you don't necessarily see in Lost in Translation. I, I'm curious, Bob, do you, do you see any parallels between her performances in the two movies? I don't see a ton of uh, parallels. And actually, Brad, I don't I don't want to push back too hard on what you said, but I was really impressed by Scarlett Johansson in this film. It's it's pretty well known that when they started making this movie, she was only 17 years old. And by the time it was released, she was either 18 or 19. But she's very, very young in this movie, which is something that I think we'll have to address at some point, talking about the the age difference between her and her co-star. But for a 17-year-old, the layers of complexity that she gives her character, you know, she she's not really given a lot of dialogue. She's very quiet. She's a dissatisfied wife is basically the description of her character. But I was never really bored watching her. You know, I, I did find this movie to be painfully slow, but neither of the actors gave performances that I would describe as boring. I don't know. Would you agree with that, Brad? Yeah, I, I probably misrepresented my thoughts on Scarlett in this movie. I really like Scarlett Johansson in this movie. I think she does a spectacular job with the character that she is given. I think she's interesting. I think she's introspective. The way she uses her eyes and the way she uses her body, like the, the body language in this movie is so well done. And you have to thank Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray for that. They are able to communicate so much without almost any dialogue that it's really, truly impressive. I guess what I was trying to point to is I, I just think that you can just tell the difference of age, that as she's younger, I, f I feel like you can see her taking Bill Murray's lead in a lot of scenes, and she has a commanding presence in Jojo Rabbit that you don't necessarily see when she was only 17, and that's not to take away from her performance at all. It's just to say that I appreciate how she has matured as an actress. I think that's a really good point, but let's also talk about her co-star in this movie, Bill Murray. Now, this is definitely Bill Murray's film. I think it's pretty clear that he is the lead actor in this movie and that Scarlett Johansson is kind of a supporting character in the film. Everything's pretty much told from his point of view. And I watched this movie and I was really blown away by Bill Murray because the script for this movie is pretty thin. There's not a lot of dialogue. There's not a lot that's spoken out loud. And so much of this movie is watching these characters, Bob and Charlotte, internalizing what's happening around them and responding to it. And Bill Murray's face in this movie is just so good. It's not like he's overplaying anything. He's not uh, Jim carrying this thing. But what I love about Bill Murray is that 
He's playing confused when he can't understand what's being said to him. He's playing fake happy when he's trying to be professional. He's sad. He's sarcastic. And he plays all of these things, sometimes in, even in the same sentences. And you can understand the different layers that are going on inside his mind. And he conveys them just so, so well. Yeah, I man, I'm just kind of frustrated right now. Because I feel like both you and I, Bob, really, really like the performances given by the only two people who really matter in this movie. Uh, Like, I love Bill Murray in this movie. I love Scarlett Johansson in this movie. And yet, I somehow just was dissatisfied with the overall product. And I I can't put my finger on why. Like, what do you think it is that we're struggling with here? Well, I think this is part of why I was kind of saying that this movie is like a time capsule to me. Because independent movies in like the early 2000s, I think we, we were finally starting to get them exposed to a wider audience. And a lot of the reasons that movies weren't able to be financed by big studios at the time was because of the kind of stories they wanted to tell. And this is just not like a big, sexy, big budget type story. And so, you know, I, I think this movie had to be made by a smaller studio. And yet... I think that we've come such a long way with independent cinema in the last 20 years that if this movie got made today, I can't help but think that the script for this movie would just be 50 times better. I have so many issues with the script of this movie, and we're going to get into a lot of them later in the analysis because I think that some of the comedy in this movie is like actually downright offensive to the people that it's it's making the butt of the jokes. But just from a storytelling standpoint, the script draws Bob and Charlotte really, really well-defined, and every other character in the movie is just unimportant. And I understand that that might be the intention of the screenwriter, Sofia Coppola, but it's also like Charlotte's husband, who's played by Giovanni Ribisi, as this photographer that you don't even really get a good sense for like why Scarlett Johansson is dissatisfied in the marriage. She's she's married to a caricature, and it's just an unbelievable kind of relationship. And then you have this character, Kelly, who's played by Anna Ferris, who's supposedly like this kind of big celebrity who's in Japan making a movie or something. And she's just this dumb blonde. She's ditzy. And what I really hate about the way that these characters are portrayed is that they're given absolutely no character development, no level of complexity, and it makes the parallels just way too easy to make. It's like, oh, Charlotte's a complicated person, and all these people around her are so one-dimensional. But it just seems like lazy screenwriting to me. And I think that's why I'm kind of like, you know what, if if this movie got made today, I think this script would have had a few more notes put on it, and we would have a way more fleshed out cast of characters, aside from just these two people we we like and we talk about. Yeah, I I think it's interesting because, like you said, the relationship between Charlotte and her husband feels so fake that you get halfway through the movie and you go, why did they even get married in the first place? Like, this dude is is kind of a jerk. He clearly has no understanding of how to relate emotionally to his wife. You know, he doesn't pick up on any signals. He doesn't pick up on anything. And they just lean into that, like, dumb husband stereotype. Yeah, absolutely. And that's my that's my problem with it is I understand that they're trying to juxtapose the Bill Murray character with the husband and his, you know, friend that he flirts with, Anna Ferris. But it's just it's too easy of a comparison. And I think that th- that both of those other characters needed just a little more depth to them, something to make their characters a little more complex that would kind of explain to us a little more why Charlotte is gravitating away from them other than that they're just 
bad people. Yeah, I yes, I totally agree. And I think another scene that really characterizes that for me is when near the end of the movie, Bill Murray gets drunk and he ends up sleeping with this, you know, a little bit older singer. And it just kind of comes out of nowhere. Like, obviously, he's been dissatisfied with his marriage and and so on and so forth. But man, it just it feels like a jarring, weird move for Bill Murray to take that. Oh, yeah, of course, there's a sleazy singer who's going to sleep with the movie star. And she's given no development and no character. And, and I don't even necessarily think that she needs to be given that. But it just doesn't fit with Bill's character and where he's at right then to sleep with this woman. And it feels too convenient. It feels too much like a trope. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And that that scene is actually, I think, the most problematic scene in the whole movie. And I want to get into that later in our analysis because I think it says a lot about what the big flaws in this movie are. But before we hit pause today, Brad... I do think we need to talk about the fact that this movie is supposedly, at least, a comedy, that there is some comedic element to it. And a a good part of at least the first half of this movie is rooted in the jokes that come from Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson as Americans being in a foreign land. And I do think that quite a bit of those jokes land. Like, I, I did find myself chuckling at quite a bit of it. And a lot of it, when you research it out, was improvised. They just kind of, like, stuck Bill Murray next to a Japanese person and filmed what was happening when he tried to converse with them. But I do think that a good part of the dialogue in those early scenes, when he first comes into the hotel and he meets the the, the kind of PR team that's going to be handling him, the guy says, like, my name is Kawasaki. And Bill Murray's like, oh, yeah, I've heard of you before. It was it's a really funny line. I guess I'm wondering, Brad, how much of the comedy worked for you and how much of it didn't work for you? I think that certain parts worked well. I I loved, loved, loved when, you know, Bill Murray is sitting down to take the first set of photographs for Suntory and the director would say, I don't know, 347 words. And then the translator would go. Be more passionate. Is that everything? I mean, it seemed like he said quite a bit more than that. Like an old friend and into the camera. Okay. And he's like, uh, is that all they said? Are you you sure that's all he said? Are you sure that's all he said? She goes, yes, turn left, more passionate. And he's like, okay. That, that type of humor I loved because... That's like humor that I think anyone could relate to, regardless of your culture. You know, I think that Japanese people could come to America, and if they don't speak English, I think a similar thing could happen where they hear us say a million words, and then the translator just kind of gets the gist of it, and they'd be like, uh, it sounded like they said a lot more than that. So I, that's kind of that's the kind of comedy I like in this movie. The comedy that I think is overdone is when they send a prostitute to Bill Murray's room and she keeps, you know, switching the R's and the L's, I think it is. You know, she keeps saying, lip my stockings, lip my stockings. And he's just kind of like, I I don't know what you're saying. And 
that whole scene was literally unbearable. Yeah, I, I thought that it started out with a really good premise. And the first couple times he's like, lip them, lip them. Like, it's it's funny. And yet I think it gets to this kind of deeper problem I have with the humor in this movie is that at the end of the day, it really makes a joke out of the Japanese people and their inability to speak English, which is is a really problematic way to frame a joke because English isn't their first language anyway. And it kind of has this air of like, why can't they speak my language? I'm, But you're in their country. And that joke kind of carries throughout the movie. There's multiple conversations where Scarlett Johansson's asking Bill Murray, I wonder why they flip the L's and the R's. And then at a couple other points, Bill Murray's trying to make Scarlett Johansson laugh. And he does it by kind of mimicking, you know, the broken English that the Japanese use. And I, I found that like kind of really offensive and not just offensive, but frustrating because it's not even really a joke. It's just kind of being mean to a whole set of people. Yeah. And even when you look at the the scene with the prostitute, it's almost saying like, oh, this is what Japanese people think that Americans want from sex when really Americans want, you know, deep philosophical, meaningful sex. But the Japanese just, oh, they just think that we just want this pornographic type of sex. My stockings. Leave them. <laughs> Leave my stockings. Yes, please. Leave them. What? Leave them. Hey, lip my stocking. Hey, lip hey. them. Lip them. What? Yeah. Lip them like this. Lip them. Rip them. Lip, yes. You want me to rip your stockings? Yes, rip my stockings, please. Rip your stockings? Yes, you want please, me to rip your stockings. Please, oh, please. All right, I'm going to rip your stockings. Yes. And you tell Mr. Yes. Kazoo, you know, sure. we had a blast. Oh, no, 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 Miss, Miss Harris. Oh, my God. Don't touch me, Mr. Bob Harris. Don't touch me. Just lip my stocking. Oh, no, Mr. Harris. And you're kind of like, well, wait a second. Why would they think? I I don't know. That whole scene just screams of problematic stuff to me. I really was surprised. Like, it's not just that they're making that joke. It's that the, the premise of the joke is aren't Japanese people funny because they can't speak our language. And like, that's what's yeah. racist about it. Like, it, it'd be one thing if it was just like a little throwaway observation that they made, but they keep trying mm -hmm. to like milk it. Yeah. Like it's some sort of comedic gold. Well, and that's why I think the joke with the, you know, the director of the photo shoot saying a billion words and then getting like three words of translation. I think that's a funny joke. That's not racist at all. That's just commenting on the differences of culture and how it can be very difficult to understand one another without a a good translator but you know it's just hard it's hard to to take one culture and turn it into another so like that joke works for me without being racist at all but all the other ones that you were just talking about are like just poking fun at japanese people for not being american well and i think we'll, we'll get into that a little bit after the break so maybe this is a good time brad for us to hit pause to try this nika gold and gold and take our first sample of japanese whiskey what do you say let's get to it Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so today we are trying Nika Golden Gold. Now, Brad, when it comes to Japanese whiskey, you know, we've never had a Japanese whiskey on the podcast before, but it is probably the most rapidly expanding and booming area that is producing whiskey in the world. People are just like jumping on the Japanese whiskey bandwagon right now. And even between the time we started recording this podcast last year and now, I think like in the state of Ohio, their availability of like how many Japanese whiskeys they carry is probably tripled. It just seems like all of a sudden they're finally making their way to the states. And this Nika Golden Gold is I'm kind of excited to talk about it. There are two big producers of whiskey in Japan. The, the two biggest ones are Suntory and Nika. And in the movie Lost in Translation, obviously, Bill Murray is drinking Suntory. So we figured, let's go the other route. We'll drink Nika uh, for the podcast. And this bottle is one that you only can find in Japan. And it's one that they really only sell in, like, duty-free stores. So it's kind of a gimmicky whiskey. Like, it's, it's designed for tourists to buy and take wherever they're going throughout the world. So Brad actually hasn't seen what this whiskey looks like, and the packaging is like the whole thing. So I, I'm really excited, Brad. Pull up your phone and see what, what this whiskey looks like. Bob, if the packaging is the whole thing, I'm a little bit nervous about what's inside the packaging. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that is the most... I feel like that's the Outback Steakhouse version of, like, whiskey. So, so here's the deal with Nika Golden Gold. It comes in a pretty standard-looking bottle, but then on top of the bottle is this samurai armor that they put on top. It's two pieces. You get, like, the breastplate and then the helmet that goes on top of the spout of the bottle. It is, like, simultaneously the coolest and the most cheesy thing I've ever seen. They really are made out of metal. It's a super nice little additive to the whiskey, but that's what people love about this whiskey is that it's really cool for display purposes. And I've seen a variety of reviews about the whiskey itself. Some people say that it's really, really great. Some people say that it's terrible and it's only good for display purposes. So Brad, uh, I think we can kind of see why this is sold in like a duty free store. It's eye catching. It's something that if you're looking for a fun souvenir from Japan, you pick this up. I actually had a buddy who went to Japan this year. I asked him to bring me back any sort of Japanese whiskey he wanted, and this is what he came back with. And I'm really excited to try it because, again, this is our first Japanese whiskey. In Japan, they are making whiskey the way that it's made in Scotland. They try to make basically a, a Japanese version of scotch, and they're using methods that have been used for hundreds of years. So let's get into it, Brad. What are you picking up on the nose of this Nika Golden Gold. You know what, Bob? My first impression of this whiskey was a little bit negative, partially because I I think I was expecting something a little bit sweeter. I was expecting something more like American bourbon. But you're right. The more that I smell this, the more my nose is picking up all of those kind of Scottish types of notes. This kind of smells like a scotch. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's what it's intended to be. It's it's definitely not a peated scotch. It's going to it's going to be closer to like your Glenmorangie 10 to your sort of Johnny Walker in that range. It's it's going to taste and smell I think more like a blended scotch would than a single malt peated scotch would. Yeah, I think I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the nose. There's a little bit of depth. You get some of those briny, salty kind of smells. I, I'm really intrigued by this whiskey. Yeah, I'm picking up quite a bit of fruit on this, too. I, I have a little bit of peach on it, which I really like. And there's something about it that smells very yeasty. 
I don't know how else to describe it. It's almost like a a bread or a biscuit type smell. It's definitely got some of those notes to it, which it, it smells like a like a peach cobbler a little bit. But then you, you're right, Brad. You get some of those earthier, smokier scotch notes as well. I do really like the nose on this. I think I'm going to give it a seven out of ten on the nose. Bob, you haven't compared anything to a Bananas Foster in a long time. I'm surprised we haven't heard it. I know. Well, we're going peach cobbler today. Yeah, peach cobbler it is. Yeah, so let's give this a taste, Bob. Ooh, that's nice. So I, I full disclosure, Brad, you know, this came back to me from Japan, and I've been waiting a couple months for us to try it. I've had it twice before today. And the first time I tried it, I really liked it. And the second time I tried it, I strongly, strongly disliked it. I think this is one of those whiskeys that it really depends just kind of where your taste buds are that day. Today, I'm kind of in the middle. There are things about it that I like. There are things about it that I really don't. And I don't think that this is a finely tuned whiskey, if I can say that. It, it has those scotchy notes on it. It definitely has the sort of grain to it. I do get a little bit of that fruit. I get a lot of the yeasty qualities. And then it has this nice like floral sort of lightness to it. But then when I go to swallow, I think some of the more bitter, darker elements come out in it. And it it doesn't seem like it's intentional. I think there are parts of this whiskey that taste really, really good. And then there are parts of this whiskey that taste really cheaply made. I don't know how else to describe it. I'm really struggling to give this a score on the taste. Brad, how would you score it out? I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the taste. I, I think you're right in saying that the back end struggles a little bit. But the start of this whiskey is very pleasant. You get a little bit of salt on your tongue. You kind of get that briny, oceany, you know, smell to it. I think you do get a little bit of that fruitiness. You know, I'm picking up almost an apple-y, not a, not a sour apple, but almost like a gala apple type of flavor mm. on the middle of my tongue. Mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying this whiskey on the taste. Yeah, and I'm like right in between really liking it and really disliking it. So I think I'm going to give it a six on the taste for now. Like I said, it really, having had it a couple times, it really depends on your mood and where your taste buds are in the moment, because I've just been all across the board with it, which brings us to finish. And I think that's the thing I like the least about this whiskey. It doesn't have really that much of a finish. It doesn't linger too long. However, I think, like I said, some of those more bitter, cheap tasting notes kind of come out on it in the finish. I'm only going to give it a five on the finish. I think that the finish is fine. Uh, it's not quite as bad as you're describing. I, I enjoy where it takes you. It's not as good as the taste in the nose, but I'm still going to give it a seven for the finish. All right. So that takes us to overall balance. Now we're talking nose, taste, finish. I do think this is a fairly well-balanced whiskey. It just kind of let me down towards the end. And that's really when you don't want to let someone down because of like the recency bias thing. The last note I get on this is kind of a disappointing one. But overall, a lot of those fruit notes, some of the floral notes, and then that really great scotch graininess is present throughout. So I think I'll give it a six and a half on balance. I think it's great on the balance. I think that you know what you're getting into. I think that it promises flavors that it delivers. I'm actually going to give it an eight on the balance. All right. So what you're getting here, and this gets us into our value score. Essentially, you're paying for the bottle and you're paying for the packaging. This is in no way even close to being Nika's high-end whiskey. This is close to being their bottom shelf whiskey dressed up in a nice package. This is an 86 proof whiskey. Uh, So, you know, it's not like it's been all the way watered down to 80 proof. 
But I think there's also a reason that this is only sold in duty-free stores for tourists. And if you look at the secondary market on this, it's it's kind of crazy because this sells for about 50 American dollars in a Japanese duty-free store. But if you try to buy this from online stores or vendors, you will see that to get it shipped to the United States to your door, this bottle of whiskey will cost between $300 and $400. So if we're going by how much it would cost us to get this bottle in America, you know, in the state of Ohio, this is far and away the most expensive whiskey we have ever reviewed on the podcast. If we're going by how much it actually retails for in Japan, it's a completely different thing. So I would still say at $50, this is not a great value. I like it. It's fine. I would pay $25 for the whiskey inside this bottle. So I think I would only give it like a five out of 10 on value. But at $400, this is like a negative 12 on value. Yeah, I would. I, there's not many bottles of whiskey I would ever recommend spending over $100 for, let alone three to $400. Yeah, I think I'll give it a six, Bob. I, I think that this is good value. I think it's a good whiskey. I think you're maybe a little bit unfair in characterizing it simply as a tourist trap type of whiskey. I think you're getting something interesting and fun here. And if the packaging on top of it, you know, is intriguing and adds to your liquor shelf, then great. But I wouldn't be ashamed to pour this for a friend if they came over my house. So I I think the value's fine. It's a six out of 10. So that puts me out to a 29 and a half. Brad, what are you coming out to? I have a 36 out of 50. Wow, 36. Wow, Brad, you really liked this one. Yeah, I was really impressed with it. I think it hits all the right notes that a scotch should hit. And I would recommend it. All right. So our final score, our average is a 32.75 or a 65 and a half out of 100. I think I'm okay with this being there. I really don't like it as much as Brad does. I think having had it three times now, the flaws in it are really apparent to me. And I I do think you can kind of taste that this is one of their lower end whiskeys. But for someone who's never had Japanese whiskey before, Brad, I think you really did hit on something. This is something that is still pourable. It's still shareable. I wouldn't be ashamed for somebody to try this. I just think that, you know, if and when we have more Japanese whiskey on the show, I think we're probably going to start noticing the difference in quality as we kind of move up that ladder. Oh, I'm sure we will. I just, you know, kind of like it with scotch. I worry about the price point that we're getting ourselves into. (laughs) All right. Well, what do you say we get back into talking about Lost in Translation? Let's get to it. All right, so that was Nika Gold and Gold, a whiskey that I'm fairly in the middle on and Brad really, really seemed to like. Yeah, I was really impressed with this whiskey. I, I think it has a lot going for it. it. You know, it's not the best one out there, but man, I was I was impressed. All right, so let's get back into talking about Lost in Translation. Brad, before we hit pause and drank our whiskey, we were kind of getting into our problems with some of the comedy being at the expense of of the Japanese people. And I think, you know, we were dancing around the word, but I think it's fair to characterize a lot of that comedy as just 
racist. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that there's a sense that certain parts of the commentary on two separate cultures trying to relate to one another, it works. You know, the the comedy that I was talking about with the, you know, the director of the photo shoot saying a million words and then Bill Murray getting three words of translation. Like, I think that that's an appropriate type of joke to make about, hey, like, cultures are different and it can be really hard to adapt when you're in a place that you don't understand and you don't know the language. But in a lot of other ways, the jokes just become... Haha, Japanese people don't understand American people, and they're silly because of it. And that just, it just goes to a bad place for me. Yeah, I think what, you know, what Sofia Coppola is trying to do with Japan, and it's not super subtle, it's it's two people who are in a foreign land. And obviously, Japan in this movie is a symbol for everything else in their life. They feel lost. They feel misunderstood. They feel like they're trying to find points of connection with people who don't understand them. My problem is that it's not done in a subtle way at all, and that everyone else in this movie, whether it's the Japanese or... Scarlett Johansson's husband or Bill Murray's wife, everyone who's not these two main characters is essentially presented as an idiot. And you see that most clearly with the way they treat the Japanese people in this film. And even if you look at something as simple as like the Wikipedia page for this movie, there are quite a few film critics who called out Sofia Coppola's kind of overuse of some of these jokes. And I'm going to read one quote that I really think is it captures what we're both saying, Brad. It was from a Hawaiian author named E. Kuhan Pike, who said that the Japanese in this movie are not presented as people. They're presented as clowns. Lost in translation relies wholly on the otherness of the Japanese to give meaning to its protagonists, to shape its plot, and to color its scenery. Take away the cartooniness of the Japanese, and the humor falls flat. The main character's intense yearning is neutralized, and the plot evaporates. And I really do kind of agree with that. Like I said, Japan is supposed to be an extension of their feelings of being misunderstood everywhere else in life. And I think that these scenes where the, where the Japanese people are kind of presented as idiots, the whole movie hinges on those. That's, that's how we're supposed to see the world through their eyes. Everyone else in their life is presented as beneath them, I think, in some way. Yeah, even Bill Murray's wife you know, I honestly think that the the wife does a pretty good job of just giving a voice performance, you know, her being on the phone. I actually found myself intrigued by her and wanting to know more about her. But then they just cut her off and turn her into another character that just is a little bit spiteful towards Bill Murray and doesn't understand him and thinks she understands him. But her performance was convincing enough that I'm like, I don't feel like this wife actually doesn't understand Bill Murray. I just feel like they haven't communicated in a long time. Well, and, and Scarlett Johansson's character hits the nail on the head in their very first meeting. She's she's like, oh, you're having a midlife crisis. And I think that's the thing that that I have to keep remembering about Bill Murray's character in this movie, because otherwise I find him almost completely unsympathetic. I don't sympathize with him in almost any way in this film, because I think it would have been better to have not had the wife be a presence at all in this movie than to have her come in the movie the way she does. She doesn't she's she's annoyed with the fact that he's gone from home for so long. Bill Murray tells us time and time again that their marriage seems to be on the rocks, that he's dissatisfied, that he's bored with her. But nothing that she's doing seems to indicate that she's his enemy or she's doing something malicious towards him. He's literally left her at home and 
he's gone off and is is trying to find a way out of the marriage while leaving all of the responsibility to her. And it it just it makes him for it makes for an unsympathetic character. Yeah, it it's honestly it's just kind of a jerk move by Bill Murray. Like like you said, the wife is a sympathetic character. You know, even in the moments where she kind of cuts him off, it's because she's taking care of his kids. It's because she's trying to decorate his office. You know, I, I think that Charlotte definitely is a more sympathetic character because you see her husband. And like you said, they make her husband a cardboard cutout. But at the very least, you don't like that cardboard cutout, and he's kind of a jerk. So it makes sense that Charlotte is kind of searching. She's young. She doesn't totally know who she is yet. Bill Murray's an old guy who is married and has kids and has a career, and he's just kind of floundering through the middle to late years of his life. And I don't like him as a character very much, especially when you get to the point where he goes, Ah, well, F it. I'm just going to drink too much alcohol and sleep with this singer. Right. And and Brad, I think I really want to get into talking about that scene. The problem I have with this movie overall is that I think it could have been a really touching and really beautiful movie if they had leaned more heavily into the aspect that is only kind of hinted at in the movie, which is these two people seem like soulmates. And for the most part, they share a very platonic relationship. And I think at the end of the movie, they both realize like we have responsibilities that we have to get back to, and it's just not going to happen for us. And I think that if they had leaned a little more into them both realizing we have to go back to our responsibilities, this movie could have been a lot more beautiful than it is. But the problem is that they seem so begrudging to go back to their responsibilities, and they seem to both agree that their significant others are just dolts and idiots who are unworthy of their time. And it really doesn't redeem them in any way. And I think that's most apparent in this scene where Bill Murray sleeps with the lounge singer from their hotel, because the effect of that scene is that he has an affair and he doesn't in any way feel badly about it. In fact, the only character that it affects is Scarlett Johansson. The only one that he's concerned about how it affects is Scarlett Johansson. And I I was really upset with how they just discarded Bill Murray's wife from that equation. I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on that, Brad? Well, and to even take it further, like Charlotte, you know, hears her singing and goes, well, I guess she's closer to your age. But, you know, then a few minutes later, he's chasing her down the sidewalk and, and he kisses her and she's like, yeah, I'm OK with it. I don't mind that you just slept with this, you know, other woman. And I just kind of go, wait, was there just no consequence at all for him sleeping with this woman? No. And, and there's not. Like, she forgives him, so we're supposed to forgive him. But she's not the one that is supposed to be extending forgiveness here. Right. Yeah. I No, I totally agree with you, Bob. That scene just kind of blew me away, especially because I felt like they were setting Bill Murray up as, like, going through a midlife crisis, working it through, finding someone who might be a soulmate. And I hate to say this, but it almost would have made sense if they just left it open to like, you know, maybe he got a divorce from his wife and married this girl and they lived happily ever after. Now, I, you know, I doubt that that would happen, but it would have made a lot more sense if they made it seem like Bill Murray was the white knight who, you know, did things properly, that he was a gentleman. And obviously, I, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of divorce. I'm not proposing that he should have divorced his wife. 
His wife is the sympathetic figure here. But it felt like the movie was setting it up so that Bill Murray genuinely cared for and loved Charlotte and would go through the proper channels to be with her. And see, I don't really mind that they they cut it off at the end of the movie. I think I'm more just upset with the fact that in 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 Bob's mind, the only person that he has to get the approval of, the only person that he really cares about what she thinks is Scarlett Johansson. And it's it's almost like he's upset about his actions that he took with one mistress because of the effect that they might have on his other mistress. And it made him just in, it made him seem more like a desperate pathetic person than it did, you know, a person who's having a legitimate crisis and really trying to find meaning in his life. And honestly, Bob, I think one of the things that didn't help the situation is the fact that they cast Bill Murray in this role. And as much as I love Bill Murray in this role, I think he does a great job. He just looks way, way too old for Scarlett Johansson. I'm sorry, but I don't like his look in this role. I think it's way too old. And the crazy thing is, I was just looking it up. He was actually only like 51 or two when this movie came out. I thought he looked like he was almost 60. And I really struggled with him in this role with Scarlett Johansson. I really loved, you know, and just to kind of to close this out, I loved where they were taking the relationship in the early parts of the film. The scene where they're laying on the bed together and she's just asking him questions like, does it get any easier? Does marriage get any easier? And he's really he's really providing some deep insight about how hard it is to be a married person. We used to have a lot of fun. Lydia would come with me when I made the movies, and we would laugh about it all. Now she doesn't want to leave the kids, and she doesn't need me to be there. The kids miss me, but they're fine. It gets a whole lot more complicated when you have kids. Yeah, it's scary. It's the most terrifying day of your life, the day the first one is born. Yeah. Nobody ever tells you that. Your life, as you know it, is gone. Never to return. But they learn how to walk and they learn how to talk and... And you want to be with them. And they turn out to be the most delightful people you will ever meet in your life. And I loved it. And, you know, he reaches over and he kind of touches her foot. And there's this acknowledgement that, like, yes, these two people are attracted to each other, but they're not going to go there because it's it's just not going to happen for them. And I think at the end of the movie, I don't know if it was just that they were trying to find some way to resolve it all or what it was, but I thought that those really beautiful, delicate touches and that kind of tightrope walk that they had of, like, will they, won't they, should they, shouldn't they, they kind of threw those out the window. And I thought that the movie really fell apart in the third act. I think even in the middle part of the movie, when they're having their supposed like fun fling type of moment, whether they go karaokeing and they hang out with some some of their Japanese friends, I don't know. It just felt problematic. It didn't feel like it advanced them as characters very much. And it lasted a really, really long time. So for me, I think it started even earlier than that final third of like, where is this movie going? What is it doing? It just felt like it was meandering way too much. 
All right, so Brad, I think it's time for us to give our final scores on the movie. I'm interested to hear what sort of overall score you would give it and would you recommend? You know, Bob, I'm frustrated because I started this episode by saying I think that the premise of this movie is super duper interesting and could make for a good movie. But as we've explored it more and more, I just this it's not a train wreck of a movie, but it's not far off. I'm going to give this movie a four and a half out of ten. Wow. I'd almost give it a five. I think that Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray both do genuinely good acting performances. I would even call them great. But there's too many problems with the script or lack thereof. There's too many problems with the treatment of Japan, Japanese culture, and Japanese people. And there's too many problems with the relationship between Bill Murray and his wife. I can't give it anything higher than a four and a half. When we first watched this movie, you know, uh, I don't know, a week ago, I I texted Brad and I asked him what his initial thoughts were. I think I told you at that time, Brad, that I would probably fall somewhere around a six out of 10. And I think in some ways I was probably swayed by how well reviewed this movie is, that I had convinced myself that even after not liking it on multiple attempts, that there there had to be something there that I wasn't seeing. But I think you're right, Brad. I don't think I could go any higher than like a five and a half on this movie. And I do think this is one of those films that people would probably argue that everything that we dislike about the movie was intentional. And I don't I don't argue with that. I do think that she introduced these these sort of complicated things about Bill Murray's character on purpose. And I recognize that those were intentional moves by the screenwriter and director, Sofia Coppola. I just don't think they make for a good movie. And I think they may have been the wrong decisions to make. I think this premise had a lot of potential and they could have resolved it in so many other ways than they did. This movie has just never really landed for me. I don't think I could recommend it. And I'm going to give it a five and a half, which brings our average score out to a five out of 10. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. I I want to like this movie but there's way too many problems going on. You know, I love Scarlett Johansson. I genuinely think that she is one of my favorite actresses of the modern era. But this was a rough movie, Bob. <laughs> it really was. But we want to know what you think. Obviously, there's people out there that really love this movie. So tell us what we're missing. Tell us what we got wrong about this film. You can find us on social media on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at Film Whiskey. Or you can give us a phone call. Let your voice be heard on the Film & Whiskey podcast. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. Next week, we'll actually be staying in the year 2003, and we're going to be talking about Pixar's classic, Finding Nemo. Talk about a hard left turn. (laughs) I'm telling you, man. For the Film & Whiskey podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time.